0: Welcome to Leaders of Analytics. Leaders of Analytics is about data-driven decision-making, modern business leadership, and the use of data and artificial intelligence in business and society. Each episode investigates the strategies, tools, techniques, and leadership required To succeed in a world increasingly driven by data and analytics, the show's guests share their stories and experiences in a way that helps you understand the big concepts and small details that make all the difference in today's world of business. I am your host, Jonas Christensen. And I hope you enjoy listening to this episode of Leaders of Analytics. You may not have thought much about it, but we're currently undergoing a revolution that will affect how we live our lives, do business and interact with each other on a global scale. It's a seemingly quiet revolution, but it has the power to shift the scale significantly for the affected political systems, industries, organizations, and consumers. I'm talking, of course, about the data revolution. It's driven by extraordinary advances in technology, data processing, and utilization of that same data, and our lives are increasingly augmented by the data we consume and produce on a daily basis. Our data, the data that we generate through Facebook likes, mouse clicks, financial transactions, and much more, is increasingly shared and utilized in ways that are often invisible to us, but it has a great influence on the products, services, and information that we consume day to day. Of course, All this data must be controlled to avoid mishaps, whether these mishaps are purposeful or out of sheer recklessness. So governments around the world are doing their bit to ensure that this revolution unfolds in an orderly manner. The most comprehensive regulation currently in place in this space is the EU's General Data Protection Regulation, which was introduced to protect the personal data and privacy of the EU citizens. In Australia, we have the consumer data right, which was introduced to allow consumers to share their data across entities and industries in a safe and secure way governed by federal regulation. The banking industry has been the first cap off the rank through the open banking regime. Now here's the thing, when data can be shared like this across entities and industries, it matters much less which entity generated the data and much more who is best at utilizing that same data for the benefit of the consumer and data owner who are now the same person. This truly is a data revolution which I believe will shake things up in the years to come. But don't just take my word for it. In this episode, I speak to Jamie K. Leach, who is one of Australia's leading experts on this topic. Jamie is a data advocate with a strong belief in the transformative potential of data. She is the founder and CEO of Open Data Australia and the regional director for F-Data Australasia. And she's also an advisor on digital identity to the United Nations Capital Development Fund. Jamie is the go-to person for knowledge and insights on the topics of data privacy, governance, strategy, policy, and regulation. She has a real vision for how data can be used to improve the lives and financial outcomes of everyday citizens. In this episode of Leaders of Analytics, we discussed the huge potential for data innovation stemming from the consumer data right and open banking, the hurdles that must be overcome by participating organizations, as well as who will be the winners and losers from the data sharing revolution. Let's dive in. Here is Jamie. Jamie K. Leach, Welcome to Leaders of Analytics. It's fantastic to have you on here today. Like me, you are very passionate about the transformative potential of data, and no one can tell us about that better than yourself. So would you like to tell us a little bit about who you are, what you do, and why you're so passionate about data? Absolutely.
1: I did not consider myself... A data person for many, many years. And it wasn't until I had one of those significant birthdays that I looked back and realized almost with shock that I had always been involved with data, data in statistics, data in finance, data in tech. And I think it was one of those pivotal moments where I started to realize that every industry, every sector is literally producing mountains and mountains of data that could be used for data-driven decisioning in their everyday life, as well as being used to input into t- technologies to start to enhance our lives. So I am a firm data champion now that I've, I've admitted it. And it's something that I just, I, I can't stop being excited about where data will take this country.
0: And how are you living and breathing that day to day? What is your role? Or I have noticed that you have many roles. What are your roles in in various entities?
1: Look, I wear, as you've pointed out, several hats. My day-to-day focus is obviously as Regional Director for Australia and New Zealand for FDATA, which is a global organisation, the Financial Data and Technology Association, originally created around open banking in the UK and has since grown to have chapters in the UK, Europe, South America, North America, ANZ, launching in India, Japan, and the last bastion will be Africa. My other passion is in running Open Data Australia, which is an independent not-for-profit, once again, focusing on raising the quality of data and helping organisations and governments realise the the potential for data sharing and, and open data. And lastly, I do project work as an external expert for the UNCDF, Potentially around digital identity and financial inclusion.
0: Okay, so it sounds like if we want to talk data and consumer data right with someone in Australia, that person should definitely be you. So oh, look, I think
1: I'm I'm one of many that are um, focused on trying to champion the potential and definitely keen to see it finalised and starting to affect change.
0: Yeah, great. Well, let's dive into. The consumer data right which is what we're here to talk about today so for our listeners of course the first thing is to them for them to get a really good understanding of what the computer consumer data right is and what it means to them as consumers and also their participating organizations in that regime so could you give us an overview of what the consumer data right is and what it means to consumers and and accredited organizations
1: Absolutely, so in essence, the consumer data right is a deliberate decision to align legislative reform with regulatory policy and rules to deliver the start of an economy-wide data sharing ecosystem. One may ask why we chose to do a consumer data right over traditional open banking or open finance, as a lot of the world is embracing was because the chair of the review, Mr Scott Farrell, could see the potential for data if it could be shared through open banking and open finance. Surely the value could also be realised through interoperability of data across other sectors. But in Australia, because of our regulatory and legislative environment, it became obvious that if we could create a right that would facilitate additional sectors being able to take advantage of the same framework to a certain extent that's that's the background but what does it mean for a consumer effectively today as a banking customer you may have a primary bank you may have some accounts or credit cards or personal loans in a secondary bank and essentially you own your data But on a day-to-day basis, you may not even be aware of what data is held in computer systems or, or bank records. And you certainly have quite a lot of homework to do if you wanted to amass it. So if you wanted to collect all of your transactional data, your loan data, your credit card statements, we may have had the misfortune as I have had of trying to refinance from one institution to another. And you are given a shopping list of all of these things that you need to collect in order to have the other bank even work out your serviceability, talk about loan rates, all the rest of it. So the consumer data right should make it easier for a customer to consent to their data to be shared from one organisation to another for a specific purpose of which they give approval for it to happen. What it's not is the ability for banks to be publishing your data or for banks to be selling your data, which are some of the common misconceptions. So in theory, it's a better streamlined way for you to control where your data goes for the purpose that you say is all right. That's in essence what we're talking about here with open banking, and it will flow on to other sectors such as open energy or open superannuation, open insurance, they will all come over the next however many years.
0: So does that mean that in theory you could mash up your banking data, your insurance data and your utilities data, for instance, for for some purpose?
1: If there was a purpose, and the way that these purposes are generally delivered is through technology that will come with use cases, For instance, in banking, some of those use cases may be a personal budgeting app. It may be a serviceability check. It may be the ability to refinance. It may be some of these new savings or what we're calling neobanks, digital bank platforms that are helping personalise the experience. So when we look at one sector, there's no end of potential use cases. But when we start to look at bringing in data from other sectors and we start to say, well, what type of products could actually be beneficial to us that would require data from multiple sources? In the UK, from a business sense, we've started to see that already happen. There's products, aptly enabled, bookkeeper in a box or store manager in a tablet. And what they're doing is they're pulling data from various sources banking data, payments terminal data, tax data, invoices, expenses, HR data, all onto a tablet so that a store manager in real time can start to make decisions and can start to react and be almost preemptive. And it's that power of being able to see your data in one location for a specific use case that is very, very exciting.
0: It is exciting indeed. And Personally, for me, I can see that massive potential in what it can do for consumers and uh, also the businesses involved can, but also necessarily have to be a little bit more innovative with their product offerings. So you you referred to a loan application as a good example and I think the the most innovative move we've had in that process in the last 20 years is going from being able to submit paper income statements to pdfs and it's not much more than that and everyone sees this holy grail of the 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 streamlined online application process but still it for me seems clunky slow and kind of hard to actually get through and you're submitting lots of information across what seems not a safe process so last year i actually applied for a new home loan and it was all via email first, and I was sending all this personal information, and I asked the bank person there about that, and I said, oh, look, I don't feel like this is the safest way to communicate all my personal information. Then we switched to this, what they call a safe email environment, but it was still uploading and sending documents in the same way. So open banking, in theory, should get rid of this sort of clunky and low-security environment, I suppose. replace that with something that's more standard?
1: Absolutely. Look, if if you think about it, so when you do apply for a a personal loan or a credit card or a mortgage, the majority of documents that they wish to see are things such as proof of savings, serviceability. So, So what are you actually spending your income on, on a weekly, fortnightly, monthly basis, evidence of utility bills. They want to start to see the different balances you've got across all of the different banks. So if you consider, and this is is my vision for what it will look like, if I was to go to a bank, obviously not going to mention any names right now, and I could see, uh, submit a mortgage application on the, you know, on the page, on the webpage, I could click on that button And in theory, it will ask me to fill out some initial identifiable details. So name, address, date of birth, those sorts of things. If you've already got a client number, it will probably ask you to identify yourself. Then there will be a box that says, do you wish to explore a mortgage application, for instance? Tick. Do you consent to utilising open banking for us to pull all of your data into our system and to perform that serviceability check? Tick, submit. In theory, what should happen then is the bank will then be able to pull all of your data from all of the other banks and any other sources that are linked to them for the purposes of open banking that you have given consent to. And it may be is it may be a little bit more complicated. There may be where have you got your other accounts? Another major bank, tick, you can pull it bank for a personal loan tick you can pull that data so that you know there, there may be a couple of extra boxes you need to tick but then you hit submit and you let the technology do the rest so the way that all the banks will actually communicate will be via what we call apis so for your audience that knows an api is literally like a train track that runs between two entities and on either end that entity operates as a train station So if I'm one bank and I want to get data from another bank, we're not talking about sending unencrypted email attachments. No longer are we talking about physical mail. We're talking about a secure, encrypted, quasi-train track, if you like, between the two organisations, which means that that transfer of data is much safer than anything we could do personally, sending that data to the bank to your earlier point, and it should almost virtually be real time. So, when the bank you're applying to starts to receive all that data, one potential is for them to have created algorithms or methods of not only receiving that data but processing it that doesn't require a human because that starts to slow down the process again. We want it to be as streamlined as it could be, but then obviously there is a requirement for a human at some stage under responsible lending to review that to make a decision, to respect whatever the algorithm exports and then that human should be back in contact with you, I would hope, to say, hey, we've done the exercise, you know, you're you're approved for your mortgage. If you would like to go ahead, we'll send you out some documents, privacy statements, which should have been on the initial page and all the rest of it, click the button here. It is going to revolutionise something as simple and and I don't want to suggest that, comparing a mortgage rate is the best thing that's going to come out of open banking. It it isn't. But I think it's one of the main pain points that consumers currently experience. Certainly for small businesses trying to find lending, it is a struggle. And it's one of the easiest processes for us to conceptualise in the initial theory of open banking. So I think that's why mortgage comparison and switching is is one of the main examples that's touched upon
0: yeah and the other thing to that is it's actually typically i'd say 99 times out of 100 where the big savings are for consumers so there's a lot of money typically for people to save on a mortgage on a yearly basis but also on the lifetime but it's such a confusing process for the layman that they they don't even start
1: because it, it seems overwhelming it's it's know. all too hard you know even though i think you'd make a wonderful point we we can sit there and say how often are people going to compare their mortgage you know there there may be fees and charges attached with moving a mortgage or or starting a new mortgage so it isn't something to be taken lightly and you know most people aren't going to even go through that process maybe annually maybe every couple of years but to your point, even having a couple of you know percentage points better could mean a significant lifetime saving, and it is it is worth the practice if it was made user friendly. And I think that's one of the the main outcomes that we'll see in open banking. It will make things much more user friendly.
0: Yeah, So the things that have to happen here, obviously, we need to be build these data rails. You, you talked mm-hmm. about the APIs, which are basically the rails of data moving yes. back and forth between entities and the security and and privacy and all that that sits within an environment like that. Then after that, once that's set up, it's incumbent upon each uh, individual organization to figure out, well, how do we build a process that is engaging and interesting and is uh, user-friendly to the end consumers such that they can understand what they're doing when they're clicking here, there and everywhere because when they click, they will instigate all these processes in the background. Uh, so there's co- actually a lot to build here. and Yes. It takes not days, not months, but years. And so where are Australian banks at now? And we're talking about banks here because open banking is the first part of the consumer data, right? Where are, where are banks up to in general and how long should we expect this to sort of play out over time?
1: Yeah, look, the first thing we've got to remember is banks are incredibly wide and varied. So when we talk about banks and banks generally put in the corner as being the the ones that hold all the data and they will be required to share all of the data. There are approximately 100 banks, just shy of 100 banks in this country. And they range from the big four, as we know it, through to tier twos, to regionals, to mutual credit unions, all sorts of different size organisations. Some of them are quite small and and niche to either an industry or a, a regional location. Others are much larger, more complex and, and have more resources to prepare. So the way that the government decided this was going to happen is two different staged processes. The first one was around the types of data that would be required to be shared because they realised that the banks of all sizes have very complex, sometimes quite aged systems of retaining data that was largely manual in the last, you know, 10 to 15 years, a lot of it's become digital but they still have to get it all into a standard format to even run down the rails. So that is a that is a significant process and a significant body of work that needs to happen. Now, the irony is the bigger banks have more systems to get into that package to send down the rails, but they have more resources. The smaller banks may have significantly less methods of storing or, or a simplified product offering but they don't necessarily have the resources to package that data up and send it down the rails so the types of data was the first staged process but running concurrently with that is the type of institution and the deadlines that they have to deliver each of those three stages of data so it's a bit of a staggered overlapping system obviously the big four were mandated to expose their data First and in some ways, you know, they've they've trialed and and been that, I guess, initial working group to see how it worked, where things needed to be remedied, remediated, edges smoothed, all of that. So they've started with the transaction data, then they've moved on to the product reference data. The last set of data that will be exposed towards the end of the year, if, if the deadlines hold, is around joint accounts, more complex lending, such as leasing, equipment finance, foreign exchange accounts, all of those types of things. But the deadline for the other banks is fast approaching around the middle of the year. Anecdotally, I understand that there will be a number of those organisations that will be applying if they haven't already for, I guess, not exemptions, but basically saying we're not going to meet the deadline. Can we get an extension? And that is, I guess, to be expected. In the UK, they started with nine banks that were mandated to participate, the CMA 9, as they were infamously known, and not all those nine, and they were sizable organisations. Not all the nine met. Five, I believe, met. The sixth one came in. The three others dragged their heels and were eventually brought into line. But even when they all came on board, the quality of those rails and the data that was being transmitted still took a good, another six months or so before that quality level was considered to be acceptable. And even today, those those rails, the quality of data is still being monitored and largely it's meeting market expectations or what we would normally call SLAs. But periodically an update may go through or other things that reduce the, the speed, the quality, the number of positive or failure rates of those API calls. You know, it it takes time to get these things to work. And one argument is that Australia has certainly had forewarning that this was coming. We have been discussing this for years. Is it plausible that so many organisations are asking for extensions now? I am obviously not privy to what's going on in each of those brands internally, but I can see why some of those recipients, so these are the organisations that look to receive the data to provide that product or service to the customer, they are getting frustrated, I think, by how long it's taking the system to actually get to that initial stage where data is flowing.
0: Yeah, it is an interesting process to observe as an outsider and knowing just how many IT applications that typically run in a bank, it is understandably a nightmare that has to be unwound in terms of so so an example is and this is a number I'm pulling from from a couple of years ago but a couple of years ago NAB was so National Australia Bank were in the process of streamlining the number of uh, IT applications they had running they had two and a half thousand IT Mm -hmm. applications running at all at one time which is what you're describing here of the situation where it's actually impossible for someone to know all those things end to end and how they work. So, so there's a very iterative iterative process of checking, testing and managing data through various parts, collecting it from various areas and making sure that it is safe, secure. And, and, and when it comes to open banking, it has to be, I assume pretty close to real time, right? To, to, to work in the the way that it's intended. It can't be a month old or
1: no and I think that's the biggest difference yeah because traditionally banks exported large amounts of data to some of the the tech companies that they supply data to I think the cloud accounting software companies for exist, for instance they may have been transported in batch files. That's quite common for payments as well. If we ever try to transfer money from one bank to another, we know that it takes overnight because traditionally at 23.59 at night, a batch file of payments, for instance, would go through and the other bank would receive that register and put the money into the right accounts. Now, it's it's digital now. It's no longer clerks sitting there in the middle of the night processing slips of paper, but they were still sent as a batch now, the difference is with APIs or the rails, as people need that data, they should be able to send out that message saying, hey, can I have Jamie Leach's data? And the system should automatically react and say, absolutely, here it is. So it should be as close to real-time as, as possible. And we've talked here about
0: banks in the open banking environment. Are there any other entities that could also participate in open banking because it is the creation of an ecosystem and there are of course other parties that might be interested in in helping out the consumer with with that data and using that data well
1: absolutely so if you think about your financial data all the different ways that it is used whether it is a loan application, whether it's in budgeting, whether it is as a small business being able to make real-time decisions, there's an unlimited potential for organisations that if they can access your data, they can provide a personalised service to you. Now, you've got to remember when I say access your data, every time somebody wants to access your data, you must give consent and you need to understand why they're asking for your data. So, we're not going to see instances like In theory, the Cambridge Analytica event where people were collecting your data, selling it, using it to manipulate you, and you were totally unaware that it was going on. That is not what we're talking about in this scenario. This is the hardest thing, I think, for members of the public to gain trust in the system because they just hear your data is going to move. So it could be as simple as I have a friend, you know, I'm a millennial. I have a friend who's found this wonderful app that's helping him budget for. An overseas holiday or a wedding and they're like hey download this app great you download the app you agree to the t's and c's and one of those t's and c's may be that they're going to be able to pull all your bank account details in analyze your spending habits start to categorize it between fast food and rideshare and how many times you go to that local you know clothing store but this is all with your knowledge And then that open banking data will be put into their own proprietary algorithms and provide that product or service that you've signed up for. It could be around a mortgage application. It could be your stockbroker who wants to be able to access your financial health as part of their informed advice practices, responsible lending, but also they need to know their client, a financial advisor. Who doesn't want you to have to bring in mountains and mountains of paperwork every time you come to see them they've already got access to it so they can streamline those services and we're going to see more and more services that will come from internationally in particular but we've got amazing companies here that are already starting to think wow if i could get hold of a person's financial data with their consent what services could i provide for them and it comes back to this concept of efficiency, convenience, and really enhancing the customer journey. And that's, I think, the potential. You'll see fintechs, which will come to you in the form of apps. You will see challenger banks or digital banks that will be able to operate on a much more level playing field. And there's a number of them out there. In the UK, you you think of the Monzos. In Australia, you think of Vault and Up and and a number of other ones that are really starting to gain traction. So open banking in some ways will level the playing field because everyone will be able to have access to data that traditionally, if you weren't the primary institution, you didn't get to hold 20, 30 years of a client's data in their system now with the consent other organizations entities and applications will be able to access that data
0: yeah the way i think about it is that traditionally the biggest competitive advantage that a bank has for an individual customer is the data that they hold on them because they are the only entity that knows that information about that person but unfortunately, I'd say 1% of that data is used effectively and the rest is stored or it's not utilised in the right way because it's structured in, in a, a way that's not that easy to get to. So structured versus unstructured data. And-
1: yeah. Well, I was going to say one, one way that that is incredibly obvious is when I was working in banks, in the retail division, once upon a time, if you lived in a a community, a small town, uh, you know, you banked in a single suburb, you would get to know your bank. They'd know if you were going to have a, a child that would graduate from high school or when you were going to get your first house. They'd know if you bought a new car. And as you'd walk into the bank, not only would they congratulate you, but they'd be able to say, hey, have you taken out that home insurance yet? You know, are you looking to, to save money for that college fund? And that was that personalization that we well, I experienced growing up in a country town. But these days we are so busy and and even the uh, the, the bank staff don't have time or the ability largely to personalize that service. So one of the true potentials that we can see is if that data can be shared and that data can be run through technology systems such as artificial intelligence or even cognitive search. Now, some of these titles are very scary for people that aren't familiar with them. But I do suggest that if you are concerned or interested, do a bit of research. They're quite common methods of processing large amounts of data in, in virtual real time and quite often that they occur in very safe, secure, cyber-tested vaults, if you like. But essentially we can start to re-see that personalization come in where the organisation that we bank with or the app we use knows that we've got that significant life event coming up and actually says, hey, not only congratulations for it, but do you have that insurance cover? Have you thought about this? And personally, as a consumer, I find that very exciting to think that my financial data will start to benefit me again, instead of just being that byproduct that I don't think about.
0: Yeah, and that certainly would be the the goal of the regulation to spur on the development of that sort of environment where where the organization thinks on behalf of the consumer and looks at what they might need next. And for me, logically, necessarily, this has to move towards a world where the organizations that can provide the most value for the consumer will win out. And what, when I talk about rally day, I really think about the concept of creating empathy for the individual, but at scale, you can use the data to create customer empathy at scale. So you, you talk about your example here of going to the local branch and they knew about your life and they had empathy for that. They were offering products, but it was in the context of you. And the data that we hold on consumers and banks can be used for that same purpose. It can be used to make lots of money but it can also be used to help that consumer and potentially give up some revenue in the short term for that. And with this ability to switch easily, in theory, if that's transparent for the consumer, then I think it it should end up with more often than not that the empathetic and caring organization, the one that cares about you as the consumer, not about the shareholders uh, as much as they have in the past, will be not over
1: time. Absolutely. I mean, you look at the trends. So as each generation comes through, and we've currently got probably five recognised generations going on in Australia at the moment, clearly delineated. You, you have at the top end those individuals that largely still want personalised services, they still want to walk into a bank. However, there are more and more aged and vulnerable people that, especially through COVID, have embraced digital access to finance more so than ever before, because they literally don't want to have to go out to a branch to move money around or to, to check their balances. Then you've got the next generation, let's call them the baby boomers, if you like, that really, they do want to have that personalized service but they're starting to simplify their life again so the products that they're having are, are reducing they do have to be mindful about not spending unnecessary fees they want to maximize the the benefits because they are if they're not starting to retire now they will be very soon and they are trying to make their retirements last for as long as possible then you've got my generation that's coming through we we straddle that technology area largely we're au fait with doing things digitally, but we're savvy. We want to start to see who's going to give me the best rate, who's going to offer me the most suitable product. Then you have the next generation. The next two generations are quite interesting. They really are looking for a number of things. They want to find that product that's going to suit them. They're worried about convenience, possibly overpriced, although they tend to be pretty price savvy. But more than anything, they're looking for ethical brands that they can also align with. So more than any other generation, they're starting to say, I'm going to use this app because this app is focused on green finance or trying to solve financial inclusiveness or it's, you know, it's it's helping other social causes. So they're going to start using that app and through their community and through social media and through that sharing of, of brand knowledge, you'll start to see relatively small Fintechs or other organisations that manage to align themselves with those generations, you know, the younger generations don't care as much about is it a big four bank, what do the bricks and mortar look like, how big are the savings deposits. They want to know that this product is ethically aligned, I like the brand, the credit card's the right colour, it offers me some sort of interest if I save with them. It's personalising to help me save for a goal And everybody's talking about it on, you know, my community. It's starting to evolve the way that people actually not only access finance, but are starting to align finance into their daily lives. Once upon a time, finance was a necessary evil and you certainly didn't discuss it. You didn't tell anybody who you banked with and you certainly didn't talk about those those life events. The world is changing.
0: It certainly is, and it's starting to play out in the world of finance, which has traditionally been a bit slow or has had it has had less external competition come in and come up with new ideas. It's been intercompetition, so banks competing against banks and invading
1: yeah. the it, it,
0: industry itself. It's
1: funny you should say that because that was one of the main drivers for introducing the consumer data right in Australia. Scott Farrell could see that if it was brought in in line with the, the productivity commissions and a number of different inquiries and commissions that have gone on in this country since 2014, 15, 16, 17, there's been a number. They all said that a couple of things. If data could truly be, if it could be used, the potential of it to boost the economy would be significant. So to create more efficient data use and data sharing. But then the Consumer Data Act came along and said, If we can find a fair and equitable way to bring in this reform, it will not only create greater competition, and one might say, is this the way of levelling the playing field to your point earlier, but it will create innovation. So this is all the different ways people are saying, I could never become a bank, but I can use data and I can create a product or a service that customers are gonna wanna get behind. And if I can work out how to create a sustainable business model, I can become incredibly innovative now that I can have access to that data. And that is what I think the true potential here. We're giving customers consent and and really choice of where their data is is going to be shared for what purpose. We're gonna create innovation in the marketplace And we're going to increase competition in some of those sectors that have been, as you say, largely stagnant for new competition entering.
0: Yeah. And what comes to mind for me here is uh, buy now, pay later players, which is strictly not anything to do with the consumer data right as such. But
1: well, well, you say that, OK, it's not regulated under a financial instrument. In that way, it will not have a direct part to play. But imagine if there was a connector between open banking and BNPL, for instance. One of the great criticisms of BNPL, or buy now, pay later, is that if people don't have funding in their account, they are often charged significant dishonor fees for late payments. Now, imagine if through one of the models that's being recommended of insights being shared, Imagine if a BNPL provider could actually use an intermediary service, so that's literally a middleman that's accredited to operate under open banking, and say, I don't want you to share the financials with me, I don't want you to share, you know, bank balances, but if I send you a message saying, can you confirm that XYZ has got... At least this amount of money in that designated account with the consumer's consent, and that answer literally goes back yes or no, then they are starting to raise their ethical treatment by attempting to, sh- to stop consumers having to pay those dishonor fees. You know, one of the things we see with different generations is they will quite often hold multiple bank accounts. Some of them may be accounts that they're saving for life events. Others may be because they can get a better interest rate somewhere for an online account but not the account that they actually visit with their card at the ATM. But if they know, if they're even getting that little message that we're going to check your account because, remember, you've got a payment coming up tomorrow, they can shift that fund, those funds across. We can start to reduce some of these seen as obscene or significant late fees that we're experiencing in the BNPL. So in that way, open banking may actually be able to play a part in that BNPL environment.
0: Yeah, that's very interesting. And I think the because the, the BNPL industry, I call it, this is my theory, but what I what I think is that the the way that they're winning out is their their customer experience is so much better than what you can get in a bank. And when you think about a BNPL player, so afterpay or SIP or or whoever you're talking about, versus a credit card. A credit card is actually also technically buy now, pay later, uh, mm-hmm. but with interest. So you get to pay later with some interest if you don't pay on time. The buy now, pay later system is pay in smaller chunks over time, so you're spreading out that lump sum that otherwise matures in a credit card environment. And at the same time, around the buy now, pay later ecosystem, there is the ability to get discounts for for the that they buy now, pay later company to go and almost crowdsource good deals for you on your behalf so that you... Absolutely. That- and
1: there's other other little incentives. And if you... I, I personally don't have a buy now, pay later account, but my some of my family members do. And they're often telling me about some of these incentives for good behaviour. So this isn't just deals that they're going to give you to get you to use their service. This is if you continually pay on time or ahead of time and you're considered to be, let's call it the better or traditional credit, we look at credit risk. where the credit card, your credit risk is assessed before they will give you the facility. With BNPL, they are rewarding good credit behaviour by potentially either increasing the limit or allowing you to pay over a longer amount of time or giving you uh, additional customer benefits. I liken it to, you think of PayPal back in the day, and I'm not trying to slander PayPal in any way, but the story is often told that initially for up to a number of years they were able to operate outside of the realm of financial services in the US because there was this misconception that because money, money was being transferred via an email address, not a SWIFT code or a you know bank account detail, that technically it wasn't financial services. And they got away with it for a number of years. And then when word reached them that the review had gone through and they were probably about to be swept up under financial service regulation and all that meant, you saw the founders, some of them sold out, divested themselves of the interest, sold it to somebody else, walked away with the profits, laughing all the way because they were able to operate, grow a business, make it as massive as it is without the constraints of the financial service regulators at the time. And that may be what we're seeing here with with that industry. I personally think it's only a matter of time before they will get brought up under financial service regulation. That will then start to change the way they assess responsible lending. If it is considered a credit or a lending product, what does that mean? So look, it's just a matter of time. With new industries new sectors it's always take time takes time for them to get drawn in or aligned to other existing frameworks
0: yeah I I think it will happen uh, definitely and to just round that off I think the appeal to the younger generation is is very clear in terms of why this isn't a product that they think is superior to credit cards so it's going to stick around and be there for the long term so it probably will get regulated uh, in not, not too long. Now, back to uh, consumer data right and open banking. So we're talking about all these uh, wonderful use cases and there is so much potential, but what are we actually living at the moment? Have we actually seen anything being executed in Australia or potentially overseas like in the UK where they're a bit further ahead?
1: Look, it's in Australia... We have got limited a number of entities that are accredited. And when you get accredited, there's two settings. So there's accredited and there's active. So we've got, if my statistics are still right, maybe a couple of days old, we had five entities that were accredited data holders or authorised deposit institutions. So these were the big four banks and then Regional Australia Bank, which had chosen to go early because they hadn't got to their, their mandated deadline. They, they literally lent in and could see how they could offer a better service to their customers. So they went early. And then we have nine accredited recipients, of which three are active, meaning that they can actually start to pull data from those five entities, and they can start to do something with it. The other six are accredited, but don't have a product that's live in the market. And of those ones that are active, the three that are active, the products that they have are incredibly limited because they're just not able to pull data from any more than, in theory, five places. The irony is one of those active recipients is also Regional Australia Bank, which is accredited holder. So, they've only got four places that they can pull data from other than their own systems. So, it's going to take time. Now, I personally work with dozens of, of companies, some of which are members in of, of FDATA here in Australia. There is no shortage of ideas, wonderfully enhancing customer experiences that, that are in the works right now. Some are literally sitting on the sideline, they've worked out how they're gonna go forward and they're just waiting for the market to grow, more data to flow in essence. Others, they're having to rethink their entire business models because traditionally they've operated in a space, they've had their, their contractual partnerships, they've in some cases owned the space that they operate in. In theory, if data can now flow to anywhere for different purposes, it may increase their competition in their their previous chosen space. So they're trying to work out, well, how do they create a new competitive advantage? How do they still align to other brands for different use cases? Or how do they streamline from the four or five products that they've offered maybe to just be really good at one or two? So there is a lot of planning strategy, a lot of tech stack building, A lot of companies considering, do we partner with a technology provider in this space rather than rebuild out our own rails? There's a lot of work going on and we're not seeing too many use cases here yet. But in the UK, we're a couple of years down the road and we are certainly seeing examples of where those use cases and the products are now live in the market. But the irony is it's still largely unused by the general public because the government did not engage in an education or a public awareness campaign. So we're back to those preconceived misconceptions about, well, why would I want my bank to open up my data to everyone or they're going to sell my data to somebody? It would be very confronting to have no information or or truth be presented to you, and just expected to tick a consent box on the bottom of a, a form. I personally don't like to tick boxes unless I've read the T's and C's. That's just me. You know, it's it's not that I mistrust or, or don't trust brands, but I. The more you know about data, the more you know about privacy, the more you realise there is uh, potential for misuse or abuse, or lack of proper security controls traditionally that could allow, you know, somebody to breach your data. But the focus of open banking, just to go totally off topic, has been heavily involved in that cybersecurity element and trying to create that safe transmission of data along those rails. So that's where it gets very different. In Other countries, open banking has been going for the last three-odd years around the world. There are other use cases, particularly around getting access to individuals that may, may have never had access to credit facilities. In developing nations where there have not been traditional credit reference or credit reporting bureaus, and if you've never had a loan, it becomes virtually impossible for you to ever gain access to lending facilities they're now able to pull data and bank data and almost create that credit score or profile for you. And we're starting to see individuals, disadvantaged groups, regional or rural people that have not had access to finance start to receive products and solutions. In that instance, especially in the developing worlds, we're seeing massive potential start to come to to the forefront.
0: Yeah, they're great examples. It's not just about our local opportunities here, but but the the worldwide opportunity for for bringing in part of the world that doesn't have, strictly speaking, doesn't have any financial services available is is massive.
1: Look, in some countries, it's still well over 80% of a population does not have access to bank accounts or certainly not finance. Now, some of that is is cultural or, or legal which I'm not going to go into now because that becomes a political conversation, but just allowing technology to solve for some of those challenges is absolutely amazing.
0: Yeah, indeed. Now, Jamie, the last question of the day and potentially the most important (laughs) for some listeners, who do you think are going to be the winners and losers of this in Australia?
1: I think that's a brilliant question, and I think initially the first potential losers that come to mind, and I often get this said to me, have to be the big four. Everybody assumes that they've had this—I'm not going to say monopoly—but they've they've had the wealth of collecting so many people's data and and coveting it and being able to use it. But the irony is, I don't actually believe they will be the losers because there's two ways that organizations can win in this game. One is to ingest data that they would not normally have collected. And just because one of the big four may be your primary bank doesn't mean it's your only financial provider. So they have an opportunity to ingest data just like anybody else, any fintech, any, any technical player in the middle. So they're going to be able to get hold of data about customers to actually start to create a, a whole holistic image of the financial health of their customers. That in itself creates great opportunities for them to expand their their services and their products to their customers. The second thing is the more data that an organization focuses on either starts to realize that we need to standardize all of the data we hold across those several thousand IT solutions or starts to bring other data in, the greater they can create internal efficiencies. They can start to create new algorithms. They can start to personalise their services to their customers. And at the end of the day, I do believe the greatest winners in all of this are going to be the end customer. I don't know if there will be losers. There is going to be change. There are going to be organisations that will, will have to focus on whole new directions if they want to stay viable. There's going to be organizations that will be created and become highly successful, but that's the evolution of financial services. I think those that will win will work out what is their competitive advantage and their niche offering to a customer. And I do see those niche products as really being the the quickest to grow. And I think if you're a, a larger organization, Don't just focus on the cost of exporting your data now. Start to work out how you can create that data in strategy, what you can do internally, but also what else you can do for your customer. And if people can really focus on that transformative potential for data to go back to one of the opening lines, I think that's where the the truly exciting outcomes will come from.
0: Perfect place to finish. Jamie, thank you so much for sharing your knowledge with the world. We really appreciate it. And we probably should do this again in a couple of years and check in and see where we've gotten to in the evolution of open banking and consumer data, right? But until then, thank you so much for today.
1: No, look, that would be my pleasure. I welcome the opportunity to do, I'm not going to say a post-mortem, that's more, but let's come back in a couple of years and see if all of our predictions were realised. Thank you very much.